Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. Today, we're going to talk about kind of a controversial uh, medication, but a very important medication to the work that I do in palliative care, but also in my work with uh, substance use disorders. And that's the medication called methadone. Now, we've kind of mentioned this off and on previously in in other podcasts, but this podcast, I think I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper and see if we can kind of shed some light on this very complex medication, break down some of the fears and the stigma, but also at the end of the day, have some respect for how we prescribe these medications that obviously are very risky, but can improve the quality and breadth of somebody's life. So we're going to talk about methadone, and the title of the talk is Not As Bad As You Think. Now, I want to say up front, uh, I have no conflict of interest. Uh, I am not being paid by any pharmaceutical company. Uh, generally, methadone is actually a very inexpensive medication, especially if you're buying it in the solution form. But I just want to put that out there before we start. So what I hope you're going to understand at the end of this maybe is a better understanding of methadone. Look at some of the pros and the cons of methadone and how we can use methadone, especially in very, very difficult situations. And I will focus a little bit on the palliative care population, just so that people can understand that this drug is actually thought of more, especially in the palliative care field, as a very ineffective analgesic that we can use to manage very complex pain. So I want to just uh, share with you some of the history around this medication as we go through this podcast, because I do think it's worthwhile going back uh, and looking at some of this as well. Methadone itself was actually developed by the Germans in the Second World War as an alternative to morphine. So it was actually developed as a opiate analgesic. But the reality was is that the the physicians who were developing this this pharmacology, this synthetic uh, opioid, is they really didn't appreciate the potency of this drug. And when it came out into the market, many people actually died. And so it was pulled away. And it didn't really make another uh, resurgence until the Vietnam War when most of the vets that were coming back from Vietnam had a heroin addiction. And it started to be used as a opiate agonist for the treatment of opiate use disorder. But it originally was, was actually used initially as pharmacology to treat very complex pain and was also seen as an alternative to uh, morphine. So there are many challenges with this medication. There's a ton of stigma, primarily around the addiction piece. There's also a lot of fear and misunderstanding around this this medication. Um, I do find myself on a regular basis often defending this this pharmacology uh, and the use of this pharmacology with some of my colleagues. And I always tell them that, you know, methadone and any other type of opiate we use, just like these anti-clotting drugs, require a lot of respect. They require a lot of oversight. And our, our job generally is to try and keep patients and communities safe. So I can do that without stigmatizing these drugs, but i got to be aware of that. So it's no different if I'm giving somebody Coumadin um, and I'm having those communications with that patient, trying to keep them safe, trying to make sure that uh, they're not developing any life-threatening complications of the medication. So let's just dig into this. So I love this quote by Dr. Ken Cooper, who uh, was the... Um, a physician uh, in charge of the Nova Scotia Prescription Monitoring Program, and this was in June of 2004. So what he quoted was that methadone is not a mysterious drug used only to treat addicts. And I hate that term addict because it is also stigmatizing as well. And I put that in quotes. 
It is an excellent analgesic with efficacy in a wide range of pain syndromes. It has a relatively low abuse potential and is a valuable addition to the armamentarium of physicians treating chronic pain, both cancer and non-cancer types. Sorry about trying to say that word. It was a mouthful. (laughs) So I, I think that really sort of sums it for me is that this is a really important drug that we need to understand, especially in complex pain, as well as in patients with uh, opiate use disorders, because it has been shown, the evidence is overwhelming that it can save lives. So we need to recognize that as well. So when I think about some really kind of interesting scenarios that I might think about using methadone, it's often in very complex situations. So it might be where I get a consult into the intensive care and I've got a very complex perioperative patient that has had some significant pain issues that unfortunately is developing some opiate-induced toxicity. And we talked about that previously. And this is where the patient is actually starting to get all kinds of complications from conventional uh, pain medication like hydromorphone or morphine. They're starting to get a little bit twitchy, so that's the myoclonus. They're starting to become more agitated, so they may have a delirium. um, Or they uh, may actually start developing diffuse body pain, which is diffuse allodynia which is actually um, a complication of opiate-induced toxicity. So that's that central sensitization that's being driven by the opiate itself. And often these patients are still intubated. They're trying to get them off these ventilators, and but they're really having a hard time trying to manage their pain, and they're also having a hard time trying to manage their, their uh, symptoms. Another case where I often will get a consult is a patient who has chronic pain who is elderly. So they may be up there in age, like 92-year-old. They may have an underlying dementia. They may have chronic renal insufficiency. So that means their kidneys are not working that great. They're also diabetic. They have high blood pressure. And they also have very high-dose opiate analgesics that they've been on since a very young age, say in their 40s or 50s. And these medications have never been adjusted. And in fact, as the patient starts to get more pain, especially uh, as they get older, uh, for a number of reasons, and this is this is always a very interesting area to look at as well, especially when you're looking at an underlying dementia, is that the opiate starts to get increased. So often they, by the time I see them, they're on a fair amount of opiate analgesic. And I'm just remembering one particular patient who was on hydromorphant, 30 milligrams twice a day, which is, you know, a big dose. So uh, when you look at the morphine equivalent of that twice a day, uh, you're looking at about a 300 milligram morphine equivalent. So it is a big dose. And also they're using often short-acting. So usually patients that are this elderly on that kind of dosing, they're often getting poor pain control. They're often falling. They're also becoming more agitated. So how much of their dementia is stable, but now they're developing a delirium on top of that. So they're very, very complicated. And they are truly, truly suffering. So that may be another scenario where I'll see uh, methadone come in. I also have, you know, I think about another... uh, a situation where, and typically in the cancer population, especially near the end of life, and often we're trying to be aggressive with the, poly, uh, the, the multi-pharmacology that we're using as well as other tools, but oftentimes these patients are on multiple high-dose uh, uh, analgesics, and opioids will be a very important part of that, but now the patient has developed complications. So this would be a patient on a very high dose of, we'll say, a duragesic patch, which is fentanyl, could be on 300 mics, which is a very high dose of uh, morphine equivalent, as well as very high dose of uh, short-acting hydromorphone. So these are patients that are not getting good pain control, 
more than likely they're getting that complexity associated with the opioid that we often see in that, uh, in that population. So let's just dig a little bit into methadone and talk a little bit about it, some of its characteristics. So it is a synthetic opioid. We talked about that earlier. That means it's made in the lab. And it usually has three different effects. And we'll build into that as we, as we come into here. Uh, now, what's important with methadone is that the palliative care population, as well as the chronic pain population, are helping us to understand its role in pain management. It's always been recognized as a drug to treat substance use disorder, in, in particular opiate use disorder. But it's never, it's the pain population that have really helped us understand what role it may actually help with patients who are at the end of life or very complex chronic pain populations. There are really two different isomers with uh, methadone. So there's the S and the R. The R is really the analgesic part. The S is that part that helps with the cough, so the antitussive. Uh, although we don't use methadone to treat coughs, obviously. Um, but it is something, especially in a chronic cough from a lung cancer, where opioids might come in. We typically won't use, use opioids to treat uh, non-malignant uh, cough. And it's, it's that S component as well. And we'll talk about this as we go along. But when we mention uh, prolonged QTC, which means QT corrected, uh, what every physician fears or prescriber fears, you know, am I going to cause prolonged QT corrected. Uh, and uh, it is the S uh, isomer that is actually associated with that. And I'm going to debunk some of that as well in terms of looking at a recent Cochrane review. So where does methadone sit uh, in terms of how it compares to other opioids? So it is a strong opioid analgesic. Uh, it is a pure agonist. It has other characteristics that we'll talk about. That means it actually stimulates that mu receptor. But it is in that group of hydromorphone, fentanyl, so these very potent uh, opiate analgesics. It does have a number of properties that make it unique. Probably the most unique characteristic is that it blocks a receptor called the NMDA receptor. And why that's important is that the NMDA receptor is felt to be responsible for the opiate-induced toxicity that we see. So almost all, in fact, all opiate analgesics that I know of uh, will actually stimulate this receptor. Methadone is the only opiate analgesic that does not. It actually blocks it. So this is why it can be very important in patients who are prone to opiate-induced toxicity and why methadone tends to come into that population fairly easily. And what I'm thinking about is the elderly with uh, renal insufficiency. So that's the classic area that I'll often see myself using methadone to manage pain. And we're talking teeny-weeny doses. Like we're talking about a milligram maybe twice a day. Whereas if I was using it to treat uh, a substance use disorder, these patients are getting very big dosing, like 120 milligrams as the max. Not all of them need that kind of dosing. But it's a really important distinction. So when I'm using it for pain, it's going to be very different in terms of my goals of care than if I'm using it for uh, managing substance use disorder. The other thing that's kind of interesting about uh, methadone, uh, besides being a mu and delta receptor agonist, that NMDA receptor antagonist, so I'm going to block versus stimulate, and it also acts like an antidepressant, like an SNRI. And I wonder if people can remember in the conversation that we had with uh, Dr. David Gerlink talking about tramadol or tramacet, how it also had that characteristic as well, but that creates some problems for patients. Uh, further down the road uh, with respect to how the liver manages these medications. 
So it is a very, very, if we look at the pharmacokinetics or how this drug behaves, it's a very, very efficient drug. It's, um, it's oral bioavailability is about 80%. If you look at morphine, morphine is about 20 to 25%. It's very lipophilic. It gets sucked into tissue fairly quickly. And I always think of our bodies as being sort of this storage container for methadone that slowly releases into the, uh, into the vascular space. So our bodies almost act like a little bit of a slow-release tablet. It's rapidly absorbed, though, when it gets taken in. The analgesic effect is usually within 30 to 60 minutes. A large portion of it is protein-bound, uh, so between 60 and 90%. This is one of the reasons why it can take such a long time sometimes to get patients to a place where they have good pain control. So whereas with conventional opioids, and I think of hydromorphone uh, or I think of morphine, is often we'll start to see these patients especially when I'm switching them over to long-acting, you, f- you often will see that steady state and that pain relief much quicker in that population who are using these conventional versus methadone. And the reason why it takes so long is that you have to be very careful how you do the increasing with methadone. And in fact, we often will wait between 48 and 72 hours between dosing increases before we get too rapid. And I'll take you through some of that actually as we go along. So generally what happens in patients who are using it chronically is that the clearance will actually increase with chronic dosing. So some of these patients that are being started on methadone may need some dosing adjustment at three weeks and at three months. And I do see that consistently in the the palliative care population. Methadone needs the liver. uh, So it's metabolizing the liver to these inactive metabolites. So this is really, really important. There is not too many opiate analgesic, and in fact, I would probably argue that methadone and fentanyl are probably the only two opiate analgesics that generally do not metabolize or break down to uh, active metabolites. So why that's important is that we'll come back to that receptor, that NMDA receptor. It is the belief, it is believed that what activates this NMD receptor are these metabolites that are basically byproducts or breakdown products of opiate analgesics. So a great example would be something like morphine. So morphine gets broken down into two very active metabolites. There are a total of three. One is inactive, but um, there are two active metabolites. And this can be really problematic for patients with renal insufficiency because these active metabolites will build up in their system. So this will stimulate that NMDA receptor So this is what can drive the opiate-induced toxicity. Another opiate analgesic that's really notorious for doing this, especially in the elderly with renal insufficiency, is codeine. So codeine is actually a prodrug, so you need an enzyme in your liver. It's very similar to tramadol in order for it to be converted over to morphine. So morphine is the active component of codeine, and not everybody has that enzyme. So some people could be on codeine and getting no analgesic benefit, especially when you see it in combination with Tylenol and codeine. If they're telling us that they're getting benefit, it may just be the Tylenol by itself. So there are active metabolites with codeine. So codeine and morphine tend to be very, um, there's a fine line in terms of opiate-induced toxicity with these two, especially in the elderly with renal insufficiency. So as a rule, we tend not to use morphine or codeine in the elderly population or in patients with renal insufficiency. So somebody that's getting hemodialysis. Generally then, the drug is excreted through the gut. So we need to be peeing and pooping, very important. All those questions we love to ask patients all the time, are you using the washroom? Are you, you know, your bowels moving? All those things are really important because when we look at how drugs are metabolized and how these byproducts, we get rid of them, uh, it has to go through those systems. So if a patient becomes really constipated, that can actually contribute to, to neurotoxicity or to sedation. 
it's a really important thing, even though we don't like to talk about it, it's a really important thing that we ask the patient. And once that bowel gets backed up, sometimes that will back up the bladder. So one of the most common causes of sedation or opiate-induced toxicity that I'll see in palliative care populations are often patients who are not peeing and pooping. So it's a really important area to kind of look at. So as we mentioned earlier, what happens with the pharmacology, with the methadone pharmacology and the dosing, is that it takes a while to get the patient to that steady state. And what you're trying to do is to really saturate that those tissues so that we fill up those tanks and then it's slowly released into a steady state. So the patient gets continuous analgesic benefit. So that's really what you're trying to do. So it can take some time to do that, uh, especially if you're doing an opiate rotation. So what are some of the clinical indications for methadone? So it generally is used for moderate to severe pain. It also can be used for with pain coexisting with addiction. It can be something that can be beneficial in a patient who is on methadone for a substance use disorder, but oftentimes patients who are using uh, methadone for addiction are usually dosing once a day. But if that patient has caries, that means that they've been very stable with their disease, they're doing really, really well, but pain is becoming an issue, you can sometimes do three times a day dosing. So you would take that 90 milligrams, for example, say if that patient was on 90, you would do 30 milligrams in the morning, 30 midday, and 30 uh, in the evening, or you could even do twice a day. But when you're looking at that analgesic half-life, you can actually take advantage of that. Uh, it also is used uh, by itself in uh, people with substance use disorders, as well as what we mentioned, pain at the end of life. So this is what creates some confusion around the clinical use of uh, methadone. So there are often many different uh, treatment endpoints. And uh, so when I think about uh, substance use disorder, what I'm medicating methadone to is the cravings and withdrawal. And usually that takes the 90 to 120 milligram dosing. Some patients need a lot less, but some people need a little bit more. If I was looking at somebody with the at end of life, I'm going to medicate to pain, but often the dosing is really much lower. So we did a case series that uh, very easy to access. Uh, it is an online access. It was talking about atomized methadone, which is what I'll talk about later, is the average dose of the patients that we had in that case series was about 30 to 35 milligrams a day. And these were patients that were living with uh, end-stage disease, primarily cancer. Uh, so the average dose was about 30 to 35 milligrams. It often can be used in patients with chronic pain as well. And even then, the dosing is a little bit less than you'll see in the substance use disorder population. Now, obviously, patients are going to be unique. They're going to be different. Uh, everybody's going to metabolize differently. They're going to have a different kind of response. But on average, what you tend to see is around 45 milligrams. And here, you're actually med medicating to function. So with people with substance use disorder, we're medicating to cravings and withdrawal. Patients who are living with persistent pain, you're going to medicate to function. That means you want to avoid sedation. And then you're only looking at a 30% reduction. Patients who are at end of life, you're medicating to pain. Uh, this population, you may actually accept sedation. It really is how you work with the patient to kind of, kind of look at some of those goals, those end goals. The most important thing, though, that you have to be careful of is that you should never be adding sedative hypnotics in with methadone. Methadone by itself is incredibly sedating. If you add in another centrally depressing medication like a benzodiazepine, then you increase that risk of that patient dying, especially in these high doses. Often in the palliative care population, we use it very cautiously, but we generally do not recommend that benzos be added into 
a drug regime for a patient who has a substance use disorder or also who has chronic pain. These patients, uh, as we mentioned earlier, too, if you're going up with your, and this includes other medications like gabapentin, which can also be very sedating. Any medication that can kind of make people want to fall asleep or have an increased risk of sleep apnea, things like that. So you have to be very cautious. We did talk about the fact that when you're titrating methadone upward, it needs a slow titration because you don't really see the full effect of this medication till about 42 to 72 hours. So if you try and go too quickly, often patients will hit this wall and then you're actually backtracking. So you need to be very careful how you titrate this up. So, uh, and you see this commonly in, um, in patients that we're trying to do opiate rotations with, especially if the opiate rotation that they've been on and this is kind of confusing, but I think it's a really important point. So if somebody is using a conventional opiate like hydromorphcont and they are starting to get into opiate-induced toxicity, it's not uncommon to see a scenario where patients with their physicians will start to escalate their hydromorphcont thinking that this is more about their underlying pain when in fact it's more about how the opioid is driving pain. So that by the time I see them as a palliative care consultant, we're doing these rotations. Some of these patients require very, very little methadone because we're targeting their pain receptors more rather than targeting the drug. So, but you still need to do it very carefully. Uh, and I usually titrate down very slowly. So what are some of the other challenges and controversies with methadone? So the big one out there is the prolonged QTC, which sounds for QT corrected. And this really measures the, uh, if we think of a 12-lead cardiogram on a patient, you're really looking at the R to R interval. And for people that don't look at cardiograms, that may just sound like, you know, goobly gop, but it is a really important thing to know. So, and if you don't know about it, you usually hear about it from the pharmacist, especially if there are other medications that are coming into the mix. The big thing about QT prolongation is that everybody worries about is not so much the prolongation itself, it's the complications that are associated with it. And this is where we get into this condition called torsade de pointe. And this is where you can cause these, it's an, an arrhythmia that happens in the bottom part of the heart, which can be potentially life-threatening. It is actually not a very common complication that I've seen in the 25 years that I have used methadone to treat uh, patients living with uh, end-of-life disease, as well as in substance use disorders. But it is something that we need to be aware of. And I'm going to share with you some of the data from the Cochrane Review. Central sleep apnea is also another controversy, which can be problematic because we know that sleep apnea can drive other types of complications related to the breath holding, as well as blood pressure, uh, can cause some cognitive poor sleep through the day, increase the risk of falls, maybe cardi uh, traumas, things like that. The other important complication is the low testosterone. And if we're not monitoring this, this can be huge for our male patients. And this is where they start to get stimulation of their estrogen receptors as well. So they may actually develop some breasts, which is what you don't want them to develop. So the endocrine system can be greatly affected by methadone. So it needs to be monitored as well. We did mention the stigma previously, as well as the increased risk of mortality that can be associated with methadone if it is not used properly and there's not the proper oversight. And if somebody is tempted to misuse it, they often think, well, five milligrams is not much methadone, when in fact it can be pretty well potent uh, and be a death sentence for someone that is uh, opiate naive. 
So we're going to end it there and pick it up next week where we're going to start talking about the uh, electrocardiogram findings, the prolonged QTC, the torsade to point, lots of language there. But I think it's just a really interesting thing to debunk as well as to talk about. So we're going to end there and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.